Shortly afterward, Lewis called together Charles Howard, president of the International Typographical Union, Sidney Hillman, head of the Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America, David Dubins uh, Dubinsky, sorry, president of the ILGWU, Thomas McMahon, head of the United Textile Workers, John Sheridan of the Mine, Mill, and Smelter Workers Union, Harvey Fremming of the Oil Workers Union, and Max Zaritsky of the Hatter's Cap and Millinery Workers. They discussed the formation of a new group within the AFL to carry on the fight for industrial organizing. The creation of the CIO was announced on November 9, 1935. Whether Lewis then intended to split the AFL over this issue is debatable. At the outset, the CIO presented itself only as a group of unions within the AFL gathered to support industrial unionism rather than a group opposed to the AFL itself. The AFL leadership, however, treated the CIO as an enemy from the outset by refusing to deal with it and demanding that it dissolve. The AFL's opposition to the CIO, however, only increased the stature of the CIO and Lewis in the eyes of the industrial workers who were keen on organizing and were disillusioned with the AFL's ineffective performance. Lewis continued to denounce the AFL's policies and the CIO offered organizing support to workers in the rubber industry who went on to strike and formed the Steel Workers Organizing Committee. Committee, jeez. Committee, can't talk today. <laughs> the SWOC. Um, in defiance of all the craft divisions that the AFL had required in past organizing events. In 1936, Lee Pressman, affiliated with the far left, became the union's general counsel until 1948. The first major industrial union to be chartered by the CIO on November 16, 1936, was the United Electrical, Radio, and Machine Workers of America. The subsequent growth of the UE, uh, United Electrical, was instrumental for the survival in the early days of the CIO. By the end of 36, the UE had organized the General Electric plant at Schenectady. 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 <laughs> Schenectady, New York, yeah. and the UE went uh, went on to organize 358 more local unions with contracts covering over 600,000 work workers at uh, 1,375 plants. The CIO met with dramatic initial successes in 1937 with the UAW winning union recognition at General Motors after a tumultuous 44-day sit-down strike. We have a piece while of that. The steel yes, yes, we do. That happened right here in Flint. Um, while the Steelworkers oh, Organizing Committee signed a collective bargaining agreement with U.S. Steel. Those two victories, however, came about very differently. The CIO's initial strategy was to focus its efforts on the steel industry and then build from there. The UAW, however, did not wait for the CIO to lead it. No shit. Instead, having right. built up a membership of roughly 25,000 workers by gathering in federal unions and some locals from rival unions in the industry, the union decided to go after GM, the largest car maker of them all, by shutting down its nerve center the production complex in Flint, Michigan. The Flint sit-down strike was a risky and illegal enterprise from the outset. The union was able to share its plans with only a few workers because of the danger that spies employed by GM would alert management in time to stop it, yet needed to be able to mobilize enough to seize physical control of GM's factories. The union, in fact, not only took over several GM factories in Flint, including one that made the dyes necessary to stamp automotive body parts and a companion facility in Cleveland, but held on to those sites despite repeated attempts by the police and the National Guard to retake them in court orders, threatening the union with ruinous fines if it did not call off the strike. So I want to take this work. moment to kind of like <laughs> maybe encourage people to go read, uh, not read, listen to our piece on the Flint sit down strike. Um, these workers literally fought off the fucking National Guard with bolts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bolts can make a significant impact. Yeah, so I, I mean, you know, like if that intrigues you, maybe, maybe go check out our piece on the Flint sit-down strike. 
great. <laughs> While Lewis played a key role in negotiating the one-page agreement that ended the strike with GM's promise to recognize the UAW as the exclusive bargaining representative of its employees for a six-month period, UAW activists, rather than the CIO staff, led the strike. The organizing campaign in the steel industry, by contrast, was a top-down affair. Lewis, who had a particular or, uh, interest in organizing the steel industry, industry, Jesus Christ, because of its important role in the coal industry. <laughs> I just did it again. What the hell is <laughs> industry? Where UMW members worked, dispatched hundreds of organizers, maybe of whom were his past political opponents or radicals drawn from the communist-led unions that had attempted to organize the industry earlier in the 1930s to sign up members. Lewis was not particularly concerned with the political beliefs of his organizers so long as he controlled the organization. He once famously remarked when asked about the Reds and the SWOC staff, who gets the bird, the hunter or the dog? Wow. Damn. The SWOC signed up thousands of members and absorbed a number of company unions at U.S. Steel and elsewhere, but did not attempt the sort of theory strike that the UAW had pulled off against GM. Instead, Lewis was able to extract a collective bargaining agreement from U.S. Steel, which had previously been an Im Im implacable enemy of unions. <laughs> Yeah, try spitting that one out. Jeez. By pointing to the chaos and loss of business that GM had suffered by fighting the UAW. The agreement provided for union recognition, a modest wage increase, and a grievance process. CIO unions signed multi-year contracts, often complicated and long, with GM, U.S. Steel, and other corporations in order to minimize strikes and also to make sure employers took care of the work process. The CIO also won several significant legal battles. Hogg versus Committee for Industrial Organization, 307 U.S. 496 of uh, 1939, arose out of events in late uh, 1937. Jersey City, New Jersey, Mayor Frank Boss Hogg had used the city ordinance to prevent labor meetings in public places and stop the distribution of literature pertaining to the CIO's cause. District and circuit courts ruled in favor of the CIO. Hogg appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, which held in 1939 that um, Hogg's plan on political meetings violated the First Amendment right to freedom of assembly. Yep. The UAW was able to capitalize on its stunning victory over GM by winning recognition at Chrysler and similar uh, smaller manufacturers. It then focused its organizing efforts on Ford sometimes battling company security forces as at the Battle of the Overpass on May 26, 1937. At the same time, the UAW was in danger of being torn apart by internal political rivalries. Homer Martin, the first president of the UAW, expelled a number of the union organizers who had led the Flint sit-down strike and other early drives on charges that they were communists. Oh, man. There goes that Red Scare bullshit, you know? Uh, in some cases, such as Wyndham Mortimer, Bob Travis, and Henry Krause, those charges may have been true. In other cases, such as Victor Ruther and Roy Ruther, they're probably not. Those expulsions were reversed at the next convention of the UAW in 1939, which expelled Martin instead. Good. There's some, some fucking karma for him, you know? <laughs> he took approximately 20,000 UAW members with him to form a rival union, known for a time as the UAW-AFL. The SWOC encountered equally serious problems. After winning union recognition after a strike against Jones and Laughlin Steel, SWOC's strikes against the rest of Little Steel, I you know, Bethlehem Steel Corporation, Youngstown Sheet and Tube, National Steel, Inland Steel American Rolling Mills, and Republic Steel, those strikes failed. In spite of support from organizations like the Catholic Radical Alliance, and that right there, that name alone sounds like um, a walking conundrum. Um, anyway, the <laughs> steelmakers offered workers the same wage increases that U.S. Steel had offered. The, uh, the, in the Memorial Day massacre on 19, or 
Jeez, May 30th, 1937, uh, Chicago police opened fire on a group of strikers who had attempted to picket at Republic Steel, killing 10 and seriously wounding dozens. A month and a half later, police in Massillon, Ohio, fired on a crowd, a crowd of unionists, um, resulting in three deaths, when one union supporter failed to dim his headlights. Wow. After some time passed between the disputes of the AFL and CIO, the CIO began to grow larger as a union and it printed its own newspaper. I think that's important, by the way. I don't think uh, there's a lot of union publications anymore. And I think that there should be. Anyway, uh, the newspaper featured articles that were <clears throat> written by big journalists, cartoons, and other political stories. The newspaper had spread to 40% of the CIO's members and had different stories for different areas. The CIO found organizing textile workers in the South even harder. As in steel, these workers had abundant recent first-hand experience of failed organizing drives and defeated strikes, which resulted in unionists being blacklisted or worse. Uh, in addition, the intense antagonism of white workers towards black workers and the conservative political and religious milieu made organizing even harder. Adding to the uncertainties for the CIO was its own internal disarray. When the CIO formally established itself as a rival to the AFL in 1938, renaming itself as the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the ILGWU and the millinery workers left the CIO to return to the AFL. Lewis feuded with Hillman and Philip Murray uh, his longtime assistant and head of the SWOC over both of the CIO's own activities and its relations with the FDR administration. Lewis finally resigned as president of the CIO in 1941 after endorsing Wendell Wilkie for president in 1940. The doldrums did not last forever. The UAW finally organized Ford in 1941. The SWOC, now known as the United Steelworkers of America, won recognition in Little Steel in 41 through a combination of strikes and National Labor Relations Board elections in the same year. In addition, after the West Coast Longshoremen organized in the strike led by Harry Bridges in 1934, they split from the International Longshoremen's Association in 37 and formed the International Longshoremen's and Warehousemen's Union. The ILWU then joined the CIO. Uh, Bridges became the most powerful force within the CIO in California and the West. The Transport Workers Union of America, originally representing the subway workers in New York, also joined, as did the National Maritime Union, made up of sailors based on the East Coast, and the United Electrical, Radio, and Machine Workers. The AFL continued to fight the CIO, big surprise, forcing the uh, National Labor Relations Board to allow skilled trades employees and large industrial factories uh, the option to choose in what became in what came to be called global elections between representation by the CIO or separate representation by AFL craft unions. The CIO now also faced competition, moreover, from a number of AFL affiliates who now sought to organize industrial workers. Maybe they should have just listened to the CIO in the first place. The competition was particularly right. sharp in the aircraft industry, where UAW went head-to-head to -head with the uh, International Association of Machiner Machinists, originally a craft union of railroad workers and skilled trade employees. The AFL organizing drives provided even more successful even more success and they uh, gain new members so fast or faster as fast or faster than the CIO. The unemployment problem ended in the United States with the beginning of World War II as you know stepped up wartime production created millions of new jobs and the draft pulled young men out. The war mobilization also changed the CIO's relationship with both employers and the national government. Having failed to ally with capitalist countries against fascism in the eaves of World War II, in August of 1939, the Soviet Union signed a non-aggression pact with Nazi Germany, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which would later be broken by the Nazis. Uh, many communists and Western parties repudiated this action and resigned their party membership in protest. American communists took the public position of being opposed to the war against Germany. 
The mine workers, led by Lewis with a strong pro-Soviet presence, opposed Roosevelt's re-election in 1940 and left the CIO in 1942. After June of 41, when Germany invaded the Soviet Union, the communists became fervent supporters of the war and sought to end the wildcat strikes that might hurt war production. The CIO, and in particular the UAW, supported a wartime no-strike pledge that aimed to eliminate not only major strikes for new contracts, but also the innumerable small strikes called by shop stewards and local union leadership to protest local or particular uh, grievances. That pledge did not, however, actually eliminate all wartime strikes. In fact, there were nearly as many strikes in 1944 as there had been in 1937. But those strikes tended to be far shorter and far less tumultuous than the earlier ones, usually involving small groups of workers over working conditions and other local concerns. The CIO did not, on the other hand, strike over wages during the war. In return for labor's no-strike pledge, the government offered arbitration to determine the wages and other terms of new contracts. Those procedures produced modest wage increases during the first few years of the war, but over time, not enough to keep up with inflation, particularly when combined with the slowness of the arbitration machinery. Yeah, even though the complaints from union members about the no-strike pledge became louder and more bitter, the CIO didn't abandon it. The mine workers, by contrast, who did not belong to either the AFL or the CIO for much of the war, engaged in a successful 12-day strike in 1943. But the CIO unions on the whole grew stronger during the war. The government put pressure on employers to recognize unions to avoid the sort of turbulent struggles over union recognition of the 1930s. While unions were generally able to obtain maintenance of membership clauses, a form of union security through arbitration and negotiation. Workers also won benefits such as vacation pay that had been available only to a few in the past while wage gaps between higher skilled and less skilled workers narrowed. The experience of bargaining on a national basis while restraining local unions from striking also tended to accelerate the trend towards bureaucracy within the larger CIO unions. Some, such as the steelworkers, had always been centralized organizations in which authority for major decisions resided at the top. The UAW, by contrast, had always been a more grassroots organization, but it also started to try to rein in its maverick local leadership during these years. The CIO also had to confront deep racial divides in its own membership, particularly in the UAW plants in Detroit, where white workers sometimes struck to protest the promotion of black workers to production jobs. Um, we haven't done it yet, but eventually we're going to do a piece on the Detroit riots, um, because situations like that were certainly a factor. Um, for that matter, there was riots all over the US. Um, well, I guess that was later in the 60s, which Detroit also rioted in the 60s, but I was more or less talking about those right. in the 40s. Um, and that isn't you know, something that's commonly talked about. In fact, I didn't know like any details about it until I lived in fucking Detroit, surprise. All right, found out a little bit of history of the city from the locals. <laughs> right. Um, anyway, it also worked on this issue in shipyards in Alabama, surprise, mass transit in Philadelphia and steel plants in Baltimore. The CIO leadership, particularly those in more left unions, such as the packing house workers, the UAW, the NMW, uh, and the transport workers undertook serious efforts to suppress hate strikes, to educate their membership, and to support the Roosevelt administration's tentative efforts to remedy racial discrimination in war industries through the Fair Employment Practices Commission. Those unions contrasted their relatively bold attack on the problem with the timidity and racism of the AFL. The CIO unions were less progressive in dealing with sex discrimination in the wartime industry, which now employed many more women workers in non-traditional jobs. Uh, some unions who had represented large numbers of women workers before the war, such as the UE and the food and tobacco workers, had fairly good records of fighting discrimination against women. Others often saw them as merely wartime replacements for the men in the armed forces. Wow. I mean, I guess to be fair, though, like, it's 
I, I mean, our society is still steeped in sexism and racism. So I guess it's not surprised that it, uh, it's not a surprise that it was more extreme 80 years ago than it is now. Right. Right. They, they were still, well, still are, but back then they were very heavily pissed off about the fact that, oh my God, women in the workforce, you know, um, I mean, they're taking our bet, jobs. I'm willing um, to bet that most of the <laughs> troops that were driving the tanks that these women were building didn't give a shit that they were built by women. I'm just fucking saying. Right. Right. They were just thankful to have supplies coming in. Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> they don't give a shit about the shape of the genitals of who's building the shit. <laughs> they just need their tanks. Uh the end of the war meant the end of the no strike pledge and a wave of strikes as workers sought to make up the ground that they had lost, particularly in wages during the war. The UAW went on to strike against GM in November of 1945. The steel workers, UE and packing house workers struck in January of 46. Murray, as head of both the CIO and the steelworkers, wanted to avoid a wave of mass strikes in favor of high-level negotiations with employers, with government intervention to balance wage demands with price controls. That project failed, though, when employers showed that they were not willing to accept the wartime status quo, but instead demanded broad management rights clauses to reassert their workplace authority. While the new Truman administration proved unwilling to intervene on labor's side, and I don't know about you, but that totally makes my brain go to Cartman on South Park. I'm like, what's that? Right. The UAW took a False different sense of authority. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, rather than involve the federal government, it wanted to bargain directly with GM over management issues. Uh, such as the prices it charges for its cars. And I went on strike for 113 days over these and other issues. The union eventually settled for the same wage increase that the steelworkers and the UE had gotten in their negotiations. GM not only did not concede any of its managerial authority, but never even bargained over the UAW's proposals over its pricing policies. That's hmm. fucking... Unsurprising, but disappointing, and I, I think yeah. that these uh, this this era is really when we started to see the corporatization uh, or you know company buyout <laughs> essentially of these unions, um, which I'm sure we're going to do a piece on yeah. on that more specifically too at some point, but we'll see. Right, there's, there's so much to delve into there, especially when it concerns how the unions started getting run in the same manner as our government, which has, of course, produced problems. Right. Who'd have thought? <laughs> right. These strikes were qualitatively different from those waged over union recognition in the 30s. Employers did not try to hire strike breakers to replace their employees, while the unions kept a, light, a tight lid on picketers to maintain order and decorum, even as they completely shut down some of the largest enterprises in the United States. In other words, winning over hearts and minds or, or whatever, um, instead of burning shit down, they're like, oh, well, if we peacefully hold our signs, we'll get what we want. And then imagine that the uh, unions kind of accomplish less and less over time after uh after hitting a peak but anyway we'll get to that um we will indeed the cio's major <laughs> organizing drive of this era operation dixie uh aimed at the textile workers of the american south was a complete failure the cio was reluctant to confront jim crow segregation laws and i mean frankly the union should have been involved with that fight and the fact that they weren't is, right. a, is a disgrace to the, the name of unions. An injury to one is an injury to all. I'm the fucking story. Anyway. Um, Agreed. Although the steel workers' southern outpost and the steel industry remained intact, the CIO and the union movement as a whole remained marginalized in the deep south and surrounding states. In July 43, the CIO formed the first ever polit political action committee in the United States the CIO pack to help elect Roosevelt. And uh, that might have been the first, but 
political action committees and super PACs are still a problem significantly uh, with our political system today. And I just wanted to point out that that is a tactic that was originally used by unions and now it's used by all sorts of special interest groups. So uh, maybe that was a misstep by the unions. <clears throat> In 46, the Republican Party took control of both the House and the Senate. That Congress passed the Taft-Hartley Act, which made organizing more difficult. Wow. And then we find out when the Republicans became anti-labor. <laughs> uh, gave the state's authority to pass right-to-work laws, which are still being passed uh, today. And uh, there's still a serious problem, right-to-work for less. And outlawed certain types of strikes, such as wildcat strikes, and secondary boycotts. Um, speaking of secondary boycotts, uh, I just want to encourage everybody to stand in solidarity with the um, Frito-Lay workers that are striking in Topeka, Kansas. Um, they have called for a secondary boycott, which is illegal, but who gives a fuck? Do it anyway. Don't buy PepsiCo's products. Right. Anyway. I mean... Uh, there's no real reason to buy them in the first place. They're all unhealthy garbage, but you know, now you have more reason to not buy them. Right. But uh, I'd like to point out that the Teamsters um, that are that organized Pepsi um, have called for a secondary a secondary boycott, I believe, for the first time since they've since they were made illegal in 1946. So I'm just saying Damn. that's the state of our. Uh, labor yeah um it, it also volumes right it also required all union officers to sign an affidavit that they were not communist party members in order for the union to bring a case before the national labor relations board wow that's fucked too yeah that's really fucked they had no right to do that that's the same type of shit that you know we were talking about earlier right within the oh. afl yeah, well, you know. I mean, the AFL was basically anti-communist from the outset, but like, right. um, whether or but not as far as like making people not, sign affidavits, oh yeah, right. the but the I whole mean, we're like, going to make you sign an affidavit to swear that you're not a communist in order to, you know, have you remain having a voice in your own labor rights as a union member. That's fucked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this affidavit requirement, later declared unconstitutional, no fucking shit, by the United States Supreme Court was the first sign of serious trouble ahead for a number of communists in the CIO. Um, so I, I, I guess I just wanted to point out, though, that the UAW was part of the CIO. The UAW yeah. was largely organized by communists and socialists. So, right. I mean, these laws were uh, directly an attack to that. And um, obviously the point was to cut the balls off of the union. Right. If they cut out the communist influences and socialist influences there, then they're making them start from a compromised position when it comes to everything concerning speaking up for workers' rights. That's the whole fucking point of socialism and communism is workers' rights. Right. Um, in 47, the CIO gave financial and moral support to the National Federation of Telephone Workers during the national 1947 telephone strike. I'm going to write that down. I didn't know there was a telephone strike. I would imagine that was at that time almost entirely women. Probably. I'm curious about that one now, too. Do a piece on that. All right. I wrote that down. Okay. Uh, Robert R. McCormick, publisher of the Chicago Tribune, who with some reluctance supported Thomas E. Dewey, the governor of New York, and the 1944 Republican presidential nominee, claimed that the CIO had become the dominant faction in the National Democratic Party. Uh, this is a quote here from him. Uh, they call it the Democratic National Convention, but obviously it is the CIO Convention. Wow. Um, Franklin D. Roosevelt is the candidate of the CIO 
and the communists because they know if elected, he will continue to put the government of the United States at their service at home and abroad. The CIO is in the saddle and the Democrat donkey under whip and spur is meekly taking the road to communism and atheism. <laughs> I can't even say that with a straight Yeah, face. I, I mean, I just put some context <laughs> here, though, as, as Robert R. McCormick is going on this fucking rant, okay, about FDR being a communist. FDR mm -hmm. took ideas from communists to prevent riots, but right. FDR was entirely focused on saving capitalism. Yeah, he was, if anything, a social dem, you know, of wanting some basic support programs, but still being pro-capitalism as fuck, you know? Right. Um, but continuing his quote here, he'd said, everybody knows that Roosevelt is the communist candidate, but even the communists can't be sure where their place will be if he wins. His purpose is to overthrow the Republic for his own selfish ambitions, but it is the duty of every American to oppose the great deceiver. Like, oh my God. Yeah. Wow. Fucking drama queen so, shit right there. there. There is a line that I want to reread because it's fairly relevant here. Everybody knows that Roosevelt is the communist candidate. He did get the support of a lot of communists by taking their ideas, you know, and watering them down to prop up capitalism. But when, what it comes down to is that your average communist is going to support any improvement to the material conditions of the people, even if that means temporarily right. propping up capitalism. Uh, people were dying and they were sick of fucking seeing it. Right. Uh, the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947 penalized unions whose officers failed to sign statements that they were not members of the Communist Party. Many communists held power in the CIO unions and few did so in the AFL, obviously. <laughs> the most affected unions were the ILWU, the UE, the TWU, the United Public Workers, and the Fur and Leather Workers. Other communists held senior staff positions in a number of other unions. The leftists had an uneasy relationship with Murray while he headed the CIO. He mistrusted the radicalism of some of their positions and was innately far more sympathetic to anti-communist organizations such as the Association of Catholic Trade Unionists. He also believed, however, that making anti-communism a crusade would only strengthen labor's enemies and the rival AFL at a time when labor unity was most important. And I'd just like to point out, you can see right here the roots of where they tried to conflate religious views with their political ones and totally did it wrong. Because if they were actually following Jesus's example, they would have been fucking hardcore socialists and communists, not pro-capitalists. But... The fact that they tried to use that as a manner to manipulate the situation is inherently fucked, and you still see the results of it today. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Murray might have let the status quo continue, even while Walter Ruther and others within the CIO attacked communists and their unions. If the CPUSA had not chosen to back Henry A. Wallace's Progressive Party campaign for president in 1948, that and an increasingly bitter division were whether the CIO should support the Marshall Plan, um, brought Murray to the conclusion that peaceful coexistence with communists within the CIO was impossible. Uh, the Marshall Plan, for context here, was an American initiative passed in 1948 for foreign aid to Western Europe. The US transferred over $13 billion in economic recovery programs to Western European economies at the end of World War II. Um, so, I mean, basically the argument uh, probably would have been like, well, why can't we spend $13, or $13 billion in economic recovery programs here? Probably. And I mean, think about it in 1948 dollars. Right. 
the spending right. power well, there. Well, yeah, and I mean, like, also think about the fact that you know there was no it, that it specifies Western countries. So everything that was occupied by Russia, Russia had to fix, right? And they did that right. and some without any help from the U.S. So I think that the U.S. probably sent that just so you know Western Europe could keep up with the USSR. Right. Wouldn't surprise me. Um, after the 1948 election, the CIO took the fight one step further, expelling the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, the International Union of Mines, Mill and Smelter Workers, uh, Farm Equipment Union, the Food and Tobacco Workers, and the International Fur and Leather Workers Union. After a series of internal trials in the first few months of 1950 while creating a new union, the International Union of Electrical, Radio, and Machine Workers, which later merged with the Communication Workers of America to replace the United Electric, Radio, and Machine Workers, the UE, which had left the CIO. Ruther succeeded Murray, who died in 1952 as the head of the CIO. William Green, who had headed the AFL since the 1920s, died the same month, and Ruther began discuss discussing the merger uh, of the two organizations with George Meany, Green's successor as head of the AFL the next year. Most of the critical differences that once separated the two organizations had faded since the 1930s. Yeah, because they both became anti-communist. Right. The AFL had not only embraced industrial organizing, but included industrial unions, such as the International Association of Machinists, that had become as large as the UAW or the Steelworkers. The AFL had a number of advantages in those negotiations. It was, for one thing, twice as large as the CIO. The CIO was, for its part, once again facing internal rivalries that threatened to seriously weaken it. Ruther was spurred towards merger by the threats from David J. McDonald, Murray's successor as president of the Steelworkers, who disliked Ruther intensely, insulted him publicly, and flirted with disaffiliation from the CIO. While Ruther set out a number of conditions for merger with the AFL, such as constitutional provisions supporting industrial unionism, guarantees against racial discrimination, and internal procedures to clean up corrupt unions, his weak bargaining position formed him to compromise most of these demands. Although the unions that made up the CIO survived, and in some cases thrived, as members of the newly created AFL-CIO the CIO as an organization was folded into the AFL-CIO's industrial union department. Now the AFL-CIO is made up of 56 national and international labor unions with 12.5 million members. Um, so then the, the, we're obviously into the merger at this point, so we'll talk a little bit about the AFL-CIO. Um, as she just stated, it's a very big union at this point. Um, they're, they're behind a lot of the get out the vote campaigns in major elections. Uh, for example, in the 2010 midterms, it sent out 28.6 million pieces of mail. Members received a slate card with a list of union endorsements matched to the members' congressional district. district along with a personalized letter from President Obama emphasizing the importance of voting. Um, and, and I mean, I, I guess to be fair, I, I used to be a lot more optimistic about electoral politics <coughs> as well, but like they're not doing anything in their community. They're not, they're not doing any real political work. They're just doing surface level feel good work. Right, that's the problem. And I, and all I talk mean, and no action gets absolutely fuck all done. Right. Uh, it remains a major player on the liberal side of national politics. Okay, well, I mean, it says right there that they support capitalism. I mean, we're not talking about the dictionary definition of liberal. We're talking about the political definition of liberal. Um, right. With a great deal of activity in, in lobbying, it says grassroots organizing. And I'm not saying that some union affiliates don't do grassroots organizing because they do. But
But the thing is, though, is that it all comes down to liberal organizations, fundraising and recruiting for candidates. Who do those candidates or what party do those candidates belong to? Nine times out of ten, it's not the Green Party or the People's Party. It's the Democratic Party. Um, Yeah. So, I mean... And they have built a a coalition of alliances. Um, The Working for America Institute started out as a department of the AFL-CIO. Established in 1958, it was previously known as the Human Resources Development Institute. John Sweeney renamed the department and spun it off as an independent organization in 1998 to act as a lobbying group, there's another fucking red flag, to promote economic development, develop new economic policies, and lobby Congress on economic policy. Now, the the thing is, is the, the policies that they're promoting, do they actually help the working class or do they help the people in power? And I'm not I'm not gonna go down that rabbit hole. I'm just saying that you should look into that yourself. Right. Um, so other organizations that are allied with the AFL-CIO include the Alliance for Retired Americans, Solidarity Center, Americans' Rights at Work, International Labor Communications Associations, uh, Jobs with Justice, Labor Heritage Foundation, Labor and Working Class History Association. National Day Labor Organizing Network, United Students Against Sweatshops, Working America, Working for America Institute, and the (coughs) Organizing Collaborative. Um, The AFL was involved in the civil rights struggle um, very late on, honestly. Um, So in 1961 mlk jr gave a speech titled if the negro wins labor wins the organization's convention in florida king hoped for a coalition between civil rights and labor that would improve the situation for the entire working class by ending racial discrimination however king also criticized the afl-cio for its tolerance of unions that excluded black workers Uh, He said, I would be lacking in honesty if I did not point out that the labor movement of 30 years ago did more in that period for civil rights than labor is doing today. Our combined strength is potentially enormous, but we have not used a fraction of it for our own good or for the needs of society as a whole. King and the AFL-CIO diverged further in 1967 when King announced his opposition to the Vietnam War, which the AFL strongly supported. The AFL-CIO endorsed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So I I guess what I want to point out here is that, um, you know, they sure were quick to jump behind his his peaceful vision, right? His his vision of nonviolence, but they didn't get behind the poor people's campaign? Are you fucking kidding me? It doesn't surprise me. Look at what it says next. In the 21st century, the AFL-CIO has been criticized by campaigners against police violence for its affiliation with the International Union of Police Associations. Now, who is who is constantly being that fucking strong arm to, you know, squash the poor who come out and protest? The cops. Um, so... You know, I mean, they're they're used as that tool to to so, try to shut down protests. Still this, to this listen day. to this deflection, this this deflective as bullshit. On May thirty first, twenty twenty, the AFL CIO offices in DC were set on fire during the George Floyd uh, George Floyd protests taking place in the city. In response, AFL CIO President Richard Trumka condemned both the murder of George Floyd and the destruction of the uh, offices. Um, which, you know, like he's equating property and human life there, first of all, and did not address demands to end the organization's affiliation with the International Union of Police Associations. Of course not. They're making money off of that. It's union dues. So I guess ultimately what I'm getting at here is I'm not going to encourage anybody not to get involved with the AFL-CIO because they probably have a very high success rate of actually organizing the workplace that you're trying to work organize. But don't toe the line. Open your mouth and say this isn't enough. 
Um, right. You know, Call them out on their shit and change it from the inside because this type of shit right here uh, is intolerable. They should have, you know, dissolved their connection with the fucking International Union of Police Associations on the spot if they gave a fuck about life. The fact that they tried to compare life itself with property damage is intolerable. So if you're going to go in there, call them out for shit like that. Yeah. Um, or if you're so, already a member, call them out for the shit. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> there's, there's just one more thing that I want to touch on before we, you know, wrap this up. But in August 2013, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union disaffiliated from the AFL-CIO. And if I remember correctly, by the way, the ILWU is uh, the main organization that was trying to organize... Um, Amazon workers, and I believe it was Alabama. Um, so yeah. note, note that they went with the people that left the, uh, the AFL-CIO instead of the AFL-CIO, even though they're a bigger, more powerful organization. What do they do with right. that power? Um, the ILWU said that members of other AFL-CIO unions were crossing its picket lines, and the AFL-CIO did nothing to stop it. That's fucked. Yeah. The ILWU also cited the AFL-CIO's willingness to compromise on key policies such as labor law reform, immigration reform, and healthcare reform. Uh, the Longshoremen's Union said it would become an independent union. And I think Don't we're better off for it. Um, and yeah. I think that over time, as more and more people see that uh, these liberalized unions don't do uh, much for the working class, I think we're going to see more and more and more. Um, uh, so from 1955 until 2005, the AFL's uh, member unions represented nearly all unionized workers in the United States. Several large unions split away from AFL-CIO and formed to the rival Change to Win Federation in 2005. Um, a number of those unions have since reaffiliated, and many locals of Change to Win are either part of or work with their local central labor uh, labor councils. So, um, I guess what we're seeing here is that when the AFL CIO doesn't do what it needs to do, groups leave, and they might work with them in the future. You know, like, oh, hey, you're driving to organize this workplace. We'll support that. Well, no shit. That's called solidarity. Right. Um, there also there needs to be accountability there. Of like, if you want our support, then you need to get your shit together, ethically speaking. Yeah, and um, I think that um, we're gonna see more of these affiliated unions ending their affiliations or stepping away from the AFL-CIO. I mean, shit, we're in the middle of a, a wildcat general strike right now. Right. Literally. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I don't know. That's about all I got on the AFL-CIO. Um, it's more of the AFL than the CIO. Right. It, no they didn't just... <laughs> swallow it up they have committed erasure of you know everything that the cio was representative of when that group first split away from the afl right um all right well There's... i guess uh i'd just like to point out you know you can join us tomorrow for our part 10 of the Black Panther Party series. Um, and you can join us Monday for uh, our current event stream, Tuesday for the Communist Manifesto piece. And next Wednesday will be the Emma Goldman piece. As well as obviously Thursday will be part 11 of the Black Panther Party series. Um, so by all means, if you're interested, uh, come back and we'll see you then. Is there anything you want to plug or want to briefly touch on before we wrap it up? Well, can you pop that page up that has all of our contact info on there? Our website is www.forwearemany.org. So you can always find us there regardless of 
getting silenced on other social media. <laughs> um, on Facebook, we have the page as well as the education group and the mutual aid group. On Twitter, we are at uh, For We Are Many Two. On Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube, you can find us at For We Are Many Podcast. And if you would like to support what we're doing, we can be found also at www.patreon.com slash for we are many. If you would like to participate, be on the panel. If you would like to um, write a column, if you would like to contribute video, anything along those lines, touch base with us at for we are many podcast at gmail.com or message us on Facebook. Um, speaking of podcasts, which is obviously the whole point of this whole thing. I wanted to point out that we had our second busiest week um, so far this last week um, on the podcast platforms, which, um, you know, just to start the, the list, I suppose, um, our, we're on Anchor, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, and Spotify. Um, as well as CastBox and Overcast and some other uh, lesser known platforms as well. That's what's up. I've been digging it, seeing the stats you've been popping in the group chat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Building. I, yeah, for sure. Um, our website, we had our fifth busiest week ever, but of course, uh, you know, it's going to take us some time to build back up. It took us time to build the first time, and then we dropped the ball on it. So um, we're getting back up to where we were in March and April there. So that's encouraging. And uh, the podcast itself is performing um, more steadily week to week than it was even in April and May or March and April. So yeah. there's definitely growth happening. And I, I would just want to thank everybody for being a part of it. Great. Thank you for watching. Thank you for sharing. If you have any ideas, about things you would like to see us delve into, let us know. And we'll put that on the list of upcoming shows as well. Indeed. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Solidarity.